Anyways, um, let's uh, go ahead and get started. Father, we thank you for a beautiful day out and for bringing us out safely to your house to study your word. I pray that in this time together you'd open our hearts to the truth of the word of God, that you would help us to understand it and guide our discussions and our thoughts in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're working our way down through this topic of assurance and security. We pretty much got security done and now we're asking about assurance. And assurance is, how do I know I'm a Christian? Security deals with the question, can I be lost once I am saved? And we answered that, I hope, in great detail. So now we're asking, how is it that I know that I'm a Christian? And this is, again, probably one of the top questions that Christians have. And I think all of us have struggled with this at some point. Um, am I really a Christian? Do I really know the Lord? Am I really in? Um, and we talked about several, way, several reasons why you may have problems with assurance we fail to walk in the Holy Spirit. This is something you've got to learn, okay? To learn to walk in the Spirit, it takes some time to do this. And we're going to talk about sanctification next week. This is something that is a lifelong pursuit. And the problem with walking in the Spirit is no matter how long you do it, you can always walk in the flesh, can't you? You can always slide a little bit. And uh, sometimes people, when they you know, struggle with sin and that, they think, well, I'm not, I must not be a Christian, I'm struggling with sin. And of course, the thing to understand is if you struggle with sin, that, might, that means probably more that you are a Christian because you're struggling with sin. People who don't struggle with sin are probably not Christians. Um, people may not understand the gospel of grace. They may not remember the exact time of their salvation. Um, they struggle against the flesh. We all do this. We all struggle in different ways to different degrees. Some people have significant struggles. Others don't struggle as much. But we all struggle with our own human weakness and frailties. Um, you may be facing severe trials. You may be going through a, a real deep valley and think, where is God in this whole thing? I mean, that's sort of where Job was at, right? Going through the trials and where is God? You know, I pray and the heavens are like brass. Uh, my prayers are reflected back to me. And sometimes you don't feel that. Um, you may be living in sin. This is a big one. I mean, if you live in sin and you're living in rebellion, what happens to your security? It goes away. Your feeling of assurance goes away. You just don't feel saved. You may be saved, but you don't feel it. Um, you may sit under strong preaching against sin, constant being beat down, I guess. There are some churches that no matter what you do, you're sinning. And after a while, you just feel so beat down that you don't feel like you're a Christian at all. And sometimes people have a hard time accepting God's forgiveness. We fail to understand when the Bible says God forgives, he removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. He casts it into the depths of the deepest sea. He doesn't remember it. His sin, your sin, I will remember no more. And it's not that God is forgetful, but that God erases it. And that's the wonder of God's forgiveness. So these are some of the reasons people lack assurance. Now let's ask... Uh, Let's go to 1 John. How many people did their homework and read 1 John every day for all week? See, look at that. See? All right. If I had little smiley faces, I'd give you all a little smiley face for your notes. Um, I used to have a whole thing of that. Donna has more stickers than I know what to do with. And they wind up on my wallet. They wind up on my car. Look at that, you know. I got, <laughs> they wind up on my car. You sit in my car and you got stickers all over. I don't know. But uh, I have a bunch of smiley faces. And I could bring in a smiley face. Because 1 John really is a book that deals with this whole question of how do I know? How do I feel it? Um, in fact, when John wrote the Gospel of John, why did he write it? These things have I written unto you that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Um, he wrote it to produce assurance. And we can have assurance as Christians. We don't have to live our lives worrying about am I in or am I out. We can actually have assurance. And so what I'm going to do is go through about 11 tests here of how do you know that you are a Christian. 11 tests out of 1 John. And so what you need to do is ask yourself these questions in the quietness of the moment. You know, when you sit down and turn the TV off and the radio off. And think about these things. And ask yourself these questions. And ask yourself if they are true in your life. The first one is, do you enjoy fellowship with Christ? How important is Christ to you? How important is a relationship with Christ to you? How important is that? 
um, as I've gotten older in my faith, it's becoming more and more and more important to me. And what does it mean to have fellowship with Christ? Do you, you walk with him, you think about him on a constant basis. When you do your activities of the day, you might be asking yourself, how is this impacting the way Christ looks to people around me? One of the things that keeps us from sin sometimes is, hey, if I do this, it's going to make Christ look bad. You know, I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to act like one. And uh, if you enjoy your fellowship with Christ, if you enjoy your relationship with him, you're going to want to please him. And the question that you have to ask yourself in those quiet moments is that deep down inside, do you want to enjoy your fellowship with Christ? That doesn't come by someone who is not a believer. They don't care about their relationship with Christ. They don't care about whether they please Christ or not. They're not interested in making him happy. John, 1 John 1, 2, This life was manifest, we've seen it and bear witness and shown you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. People will say, I love God, but I don't love Christ. Well, you can't do that. We have a world full of people, right, that love God or whatever they think God is, right? Muslim people love God, right? They worship God. And there's a lot of people that uh, you might run into that say, hey, I have nothing against God. You want to believe in God? That's fine. I, I love God too. And then you say, well, what about Jesus? And they have this blank look on their face. The Jewish people, you ask them, do you love God? Absolutely, they love God, right? They're, I mean, they, they spend a lot of time loving God. They spend a lot of time keeping the rules. Then you ask them, well, what about Jesus? And it's like, oh, no, not him. Well, Jesus said something in John, right? He says, if you want to come to the Father, how do you get there? Through me. Through me. You don't go any other way. And I like that old hymn, the way of the cross leads home. I wish we sang that more. The way of the cross leads home. It's not your way. It's not the way that you concoct. You come God's way or you don't come. And Christ said, I am the door of the sheepfold. If you want to come into the sheepfold, you come through me. You don't come any other way. Christ is the access that we have to heaven, to the Father. And the question you need to ask yourself is deep down inside, when all is said and done, do you love Christ? Do you love Jesus? Do you have fellowship with him? Do you feel that connection at times? It doesn't mean it's all the time, right? Because what happens to your emotions? They go up and down. I do not feel saved sometimes. And I think all of us in here face that, right? There are some days that we just don't feel like, you know, we're really saved. But if you ask yourself the question, do I love Jesus? Do I want to please him? Do I want to bring joy to his heart? And the answer to that is yes. That is a hint that there is a connection there. Because unbelievers don't have that connection. They could care less. Mm -hmm. There isn't a say, I want to please you. You know, you don't even feel like saying it. There's still an ache or a, a longing. Yeah. yeah. And see, the problem, here, here's our problem. We talked about this last week. We live in a fallen world with a lot of fallen people all around us, a fallen creation. Things are out of whack. We have to deal with our flesh, we have to deal with the world, we have to deal with Satan. We're not going to always feel on top of the world. And when you have a Christian on TV that comes along and says, if you're a Christian, you just need to be tiptoeing through the tulips and victory every day and just high on the clouds of, you know, living on Mount Zion 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, they're, they're smoking something. Because that is not what the Christian life is all about. It's not. There are going to be those times, Right? There's going to be the mounts of transfigurations in our lives when we're there. And there's going to be the valleys of despond. There's going to be the valley of the shadow of death. There's going to be the trials. And, and that goes with the Christian life. That's part of it. And it's because we live in a fallen world. 
And that's what makes heaven so great because you're away from the fall. You don't have to worry about sin anymore. So you can enjoy the full, reflect, the full um, experience of God's closeness and love. We're not going to feel close to Christ all the time in the veil of this world with the veil of the flesh. We're just not going to do that. And to think that you have to do that, and if you don't do that, and you're not always smiling and all of that, that somehow there's something wrong with your Christian faith, that is an invalid form of Christianity. Some of the godliest people that you'll run into are the people who have gone through the deepest valleys and may even still be in the deepest valleys. That's just the way it is. It's a false view of Christianity that thinks that you're just going to fly through the clouds every day and no problems. What did Christ say? In the world, you're going to have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. What are you surprised about? And, and probably, if you want to think about it in sort of a twisted way, not really twist, but a twisted way, the more you suffer in this life, the more you feel the, the suffering of sin and the effects of sin, the more broken you are over sin, probably the more godly you are, right? You go back and read some of the biographies of great Christians of times past and they all struggled with sin. They felt the burden of sin. And it's because of that. Because they're a believer. But do you have fellowship with Christ? It's really close. Are you sensitive to sin in your life? When you sin, do you feel it? Whether we're talking about what you just said or I think about uh, America versus third world, versus far more struggling places. Their faith is so much more vibrant than mm -hmm. overall ours is. Yeah. And, I, and, and just as an aside, I think the reason for that, and I was talking to somebody this week, I forget in what context, but one of the reasons for that is we have it pretty cushy as Christians in this country, don't we? So is there really a push for us to get to heaven in our own personal lives? For the most part, no. I mean, you have it pretty good here, right? Anybody starving in here? Anybody suffering some debilitating disease that they can't go to a doctor to see? Anybody in pain all day long? Anybody homeless like the people down in Haiti? Anybody have their house fall in on them last week? We have it pretty cushy, don't we? Yeah, we have it pretty cushy. So, one, and, and just as an aside, I think one of the reasons God does bring suffering and trials into our lives, sometimes just say, you realize you're, this is not your final destination down here. And you're not supposed to be comfortable down here because this is not where your comfort should be. Your comfort is in heaven. We look for heaven. And throughout the centuries, Christians, by and large, have looked forward to heaven because life down here was just pretty crappy. Go back to the Puritans. You know, they lived day to day to just survive. Have 15 kids and three of them live. I mean, it was a pretty rotten life back then. And, and so heaven was attractive to them. And to most Christians today, heaven is not attractive. Because you can go home to your 50-inch plasma TV and watch the playoffs, sipping your hot cocoa or whatever, and there's no pain. <laughs> I see some uh, conviction we there. We know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gee. Yeah. Marshall. I don't have a plasma TV, but uh, <laughs> I think it's important to say to kind of paraphrase what you not walk around those in our circle that God places us with a long face of complaining all day long because they're saying, hey, Jesus Christ is your Savior. Why do you have a long face all day long every day complaining all the time? I can do that by myself. I don't need your Jesus. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important that while we're going through tribulation and struggle that we have confidence that there, that season will come to an end when it's here on earth so that those around you who are not saved but watching you to see how you handle your adversity you handle your uh, uh, tribulations, they can say, hmm, you know, he's going, he's going through, similar to mine, but he's responding differently. He's not responding like me, an unbeliever. He's responding differently, though he's in the same, uh, similar circumstances. So I think it's important that while we go through that, 
that we least be sensitive to recognize those around us who are unsaved are also watching us to see how we handle that. I think it's important. We have people keeping an eye on us, and sometimes we need to realize we're reflecting Christ to everybody around us by our actions. And whether we feel like on top of the world um, or not is not relevant. It's how are we reflecting God's grace and power as we go through the trial. I remember um, Donna's grandmother was a, really a wonderful lady. And somebody asked uh, my Donna's aunt's um, husband, Junior, Junior Sturgill is his name, loves the Lord. They asked him, do you believe in angels? He said, yeah, I had one live with us for three years. And that was Donna's grandma who was suffering. I mean, she had trouble. She had trial. But you never knew it. You never knew it. She always had a smile on her face and just loved people. And, you know, that's the way I want to go out. You know, if I have to go out of this world, that's the way I want to go out. I don't want to go out being a sourpuss. You know, I, I like the way um, Vance Havner put it. He says, God preserves his saints. He doesn't pickle them. And um, I don't want, God preserves his saints. He doesn't pickle them. You know. Yeah, and uh, I don't want to be a pickled saint on the way out. All right. Um, but it, 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 we can have joy in spite of our trials. We talked about that last week. Yeah. And just one, the reason, one of the reasons I brought that up about the difference between America and other far worse off places is in 1998 when my youngest son got married and because he had lived in South Africa for a year and had this adopted grandmother over there, she came over here <coughs> to his wedding and she said to me, why do you want to go to heaven? It's, you live in such a beautiful place or this is such a great country. Or when I took her to the projects where for a long minute of my life I had to live. And I was trying to do that to try <coughs> to demonstrate to her that it's not all roses over here either. And she said, this is like where some of our elite live. So yeah. even the projects are fancy. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. It's all your perspective. It's all your perspective. You know, and God puts a longing in our heart for the next life. And sometimes that longing comes in the form of troubles and trials and tribulations because we're, this is not our home. So instead of seeing those trials as something that God does not love us, God is trying to show us, hey, I got something better. Far better than this mess down here. You really want to live here forever? I don't. Are you sensitive to sin in your life? Here's another question. Are you sensitive to sin? Do you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Now this is very important because a lot of times people say, well, man, I, I, I'm always struggling with sin. I just feel so um, despondent because I can't, I can't gain victory in my life over some particular area. And and I, I, I want to do the right thing, and I can't. I must not be a Christian. And my answer is, well, why then do you feel bad about it? Right? Now, if you're telling me you feel bad about it because you want, don't want to get caught, that, that's different. That's, that's no better than the pagans out there. But if there's a thing down inside you say, I don't want to sin, I want to be holy, I really want to do the right thing, that's not the mark of an unbeliever. That's the mark of a Christian. Paul struggled with sin. Romans chapter 7. Um, if we go there for just a minute. Um, Romans 7 is, is probably the great chapter on this. Some people try to say, well, this is Paul talking about an unbeliever. No, it isn't. This is Paul talking about himself. This is Paul talking here. Um, I'm just going to read starting in verse 7, what shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. What's Paul saying? The law entered and it gave us a whole bunch of things, right? It gave us a whole bunch of rules. And how do I know I'm a sinner? I break them all. All the time. I can't help myself but break them. And he says... Uh, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. This is what he's saying. He's saying, before the law came that said, thou shalt not covet, could I covet? Did I feel, did I feel wrong about coveting? No, but now the law came and said, thou shalt not covet, so now what do I do? 
all the time. And not only does it do that, but it exacerbates the sin because now that I know it's wrong, what I find myself doing even more of. <laughs> yeah, you want people to walk on the grass, just put a sign and say, stay off, right? And they'll walk on it. And he says, uh, for what I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The idea of being alive there is he's alive in the sense that I don't feel the, the weight of sin. I don't feel the issue of sin. But now that the law comes in and tells me, thou shalt not covet, I find myself coveting constantly. I feel the conviction of it. I can't get away from it. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem is not the law. That's what he's saying. The problem is not the problem with the law. The law is a good thing. The problem is I can't keep it. And when the law comes along and says, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, what do I find myself constantly doing now as I look at myself? Lying, coveting, stealing, committing adultery in my heart, bearing false witness, whatever. So did that which is good bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment sin might become sinful beyond measure. Why did the law come in? To really show me how bad I am. To be a tutor, to bring the sky. To really show me how rotten I am. What did sin do? It exacerbated it. So when I looked at my own life, what did I find? I find myself really as bad as I thought I was. Now if God had not given the law, how sinful would we feel? Not as much as we do now, right? I mean, sin's still there because people die, but I wouldn't feel it. But now that the law came in and the law said, thou shalt not covet, and he's using that as an example, I find myself constantly coveting, and what was supposed to be a good thing to show me what God wanted me to do produced bad in me because of the weakness of my flesh. I can't help but covet constantly. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good, so thou, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do not, if I do what I do not one is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. What's he saying? He's saying, I have a weakness in the flesh. God's law is, is perfect, it's holy, it's righteous, it's good. But where's the problem? The problem is not the law, the problem is me. I can't keep it. And why can't I keep it? Because of the weakness of the flesh. And this is Paul's real struggle. This is, this is probably one of the godliest men that ever lived. And what is he saying about coveting? I struggle with it. And you're going to struggle with it until you die. You realize that. You're going to struggle with sin the rest of your life to varying degrees. And probably, and I would venture to say, the closer you get to the Lord, the more you're going to struggle because the more you're going to see it. The more you're going to understand it. All right? Now, there's no cause for despair because what is Christ's... Or what is, John saying in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. But if you are struggling with sin in your life and you honestly deep down want to do the right thing and you want to be godly and you want to be holy and you find yourself constantly struggling with a particular sin, that's not an indication that you're not a believer. It's an indication that you are because you're struggling. If you show me someone who's living in sin and they don't care, they're not a Christian. That's the people that aren't believers, the people that don't care, or the people that make excuses for it. Well, you need to understand, I got a bad hair day and I just can't help it. And No, you don't make excuses for it. If you struggle with sin, you're a believer. In fact, it says here, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we are we lie. Who do we lie to? Ourselves. You're lying to yourself. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. There's a group of Christian, um, some Christian denominations say, well, you can get to the point where you live in sinless perfection. You don't sin at all. Yeah, there's, there are Christians that don't sin. They're called dead. Yeah. <laughs> all right? Or vegetables in a... 
hospital somewhere in a coma. We're always going to struggle with that. Now hopefully, as you become more godly, you sin less, but the sin that you do do is, is magnified. It's more traumatic, right? Because your relationship with Christ is so close that the closer you are to Christ... Just think about this. The closer you are to somebody, the more it bothers you when you offend them, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I could say something really mean to, to Barry here, and I might feel a little bad about it, but you know what? I'm not really close to Barry, you know? <laughs> We're not best buds, you know, that kind of thing. But if I do the same thing to my wife, I feel a whole lot worse, don't I? And why is that? She can hurt you. Yes, yeah, she can. <laughs> <laughs> She can. Yeah, she can. She can bonk me on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're toast, buddy. Um, but no, it's because I'm closer to my wife, so I'm I'm more sensitive, right? We all. We're, it's true for all of us. Those people that we are close to, when we offend them, we feel a lot worse about it than somebody that cuts us off on the road and we yell at them, right? Because we're close to them. If you are close to Christ, you're going to feel it when you offend him. And it's going to hurt you more deeply than those people you're not close to. So the closer you get to Christ, the more you're going to see your sin. The problem with that notion of sinless perfection that you can reach at some point is they are only focusing on getting less and less guilty of sins of commission. They always forget about the sins of omission. So fine, maybe I don't dance, drink, smoke, cuss, or chew, or go with boys who do. But there are... I thought you were going to say go with girls who do. You know, that's what I... <laughs> but the point is, so fine, I'm maybe doing a few less things than I used to do as a newer Christian, but I am still not doing a lot of things that I'm supposed to be doing. Right. And the other, here's the other thing you can do. You can change the labels, right? You can, you can take something that's sinful and say, well, it's not really sinful, so you assuage your conscience. But if you go back to the definition of what sin is, and you go back and see what Christ said about it, I mean, that's what the Pharisees did, right? They said, well, I haven't stuck a knife in anybody's back. I'm not a murderer. And Christ said, yeah, but you hate people. That's the same thing. Well, I've not committed adultery. I've not gone to bed with a woman. Yeah, but you think about it. You've done, you've done the same thing. You, 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 you commit sin because you, you change the labels. So you've got to go back and ask. And, and, and that's why you need to be in the Word because you need to get the right labels on things. And when you get the right labels, all of us fall short. And we all feel that. And if you feel that, that is an indication that you have a relationship with Christ. Right. Right. You know, so you, if, if you take a very broad uh, view of sin, okay, yeah, no, I didn't, steal, I didn't steal, I didn't kill anybody, I didn't do this, this, and this. Okay, I'm great, I'm perfect. But you also have to uh, keep in mind that Jesus keeps us responsible for what we think. Right. And that was the problem with the Pharisees. You know, they had created a system of rules that they could keep and make themselves out to be really nice, holy, godly, righteous people. And Christ says, you've got the wrong labels. You, you've got the wrong standard. Right. And that's, that's very important. You know, you, you commit adultery in your head long before you commit the act. You, you commit murder by hating somebody long before you kill them. It's, a th it's the heart that's the problem. That, that's the problem for us. It's our attitudes. But are you sensitive to sin in your life? Are you obedient to the Word of God? What does this mean? It's, this is not perfection. Anybody here perfectly obedient to the Scriptures? 
No. Do you want to be? Is that your attitude? Is that your desire? Do you, and, and, and as you look at your life over the past five years, do you see progression in this area? Are you more obedient today than you were five years ago? Do you see an upward trend? That's what we're talking about here. Hereby we do know him that we know that we know him. How do I know that I know him? I keep his commandments. And by the way, his commandments are not grievous. In what sense are they not grievous? If I love him, pleasing him is something that brings joy to my heart, isn't it? So I'm going to want to do those things that please him. I'm going to desire that. And so you need to ask yourselves when you look in the mirror, do you really desire to be a godly person? Do you want to be obedient to the word of God? Do you want to do those things that God has commanded us? If that's the desire of your heart, that is the mark of a true Christian. Because you want to do that. You desire that. You show me someone who doesn't want to obey, or someone who doesn't care whether they obey or not, and that's someone that I would say needs to look at themselves and say, am I really a Christian? Am I, am I really in? Because I don't have any desire to please God. I don't have any desire to do that. And, you know, one of the difficulties is, you know, there are people that say, well, you can reach a level of, going back to our previous discussion, I can reach a level of sinless perfection in this life, but when you start digging in to say, well, what do you mean by that? What they've done is they've redefined sin in such a way that they're able to keep it. They're able to keep the rules. But if you go back and say, well, wait a minute, this is what the Bible said. Now all of a sudden they fall short. And some of them say, well, um, and I'm not making this up, there's some that say, well, a, a Christian can err but not sin. All right? And what do they mean by that? They mean, well, if, if, if you do something wrong but you didn't intend to do it, it's not a real sin. It's an error. Yeah. And also, a mistake is not a sin. Yeah. So, yeah, there was redefinition all the time. I mean, and we're and by the way, as human beings, we are very good at that. You can redefine anything to be anything you want, and you can make yourself out to be a very godly person when, in fact, you're not. And that's the problem with the Pharisees. You know, Christ roasted them, saying, "You guys have redefined everything to make yourselves look holy." And on the outside, what do you see? You see a beautiful cup. You see a a, a grand tomb. But what's inside that thing? Ickiness and excess and dead men's bones and decaying flesh. You think you look good on the outside, but inside you're rotten to the core. No. And see, what they will say is if you didn't intend to sin, it doesn't count. Well, that's what the Pharisees said. There's a group of Pharisees that came along and said, well, we're sort of in trouble because we're finding out we can't keep this law business. So what we'll say is if you intend to keep the law, that's like you kept it. And then they found out that didn't work. So they said, well, if you just wake up in the day and you intend to try and keep one of them, that's good enough. So you keep redefining the standard and you can make yourself out to be holy in your own eyes. But when you go back and look at what God has defined it, we're in trouble. Yeah. Don't redefine sin. You want to find out what the real sin is. You go and see what the Word of God says about it. Don't twist it to be something it is not. Um, there's another one. Have you rejected the world? What do you mean by rejecting the world? Are you comfortable down here? In a sense that, are you comfortable, would you be comfortable walking into a bar or would you be comfortable going to some of these places? Would you feel comfortable there? Or are you comfortable trying to witness? No. How comfortable are you with the world? Because we're to hate, now what do we mean by the world? What is the world? Well, the world is not the physical world, right? 
It's the system. It's the philosophy. It's the values. It's the mores. It's, it's what people value. Do you value fame, glitter, money? Is that what you value? Do you value a good time at the party? Do you like the party? Do you like the revel with the crowds? That's what Paul says. You're like people who revel in the... You're not that anymore. I mean, I remember when, back in my previous life, when Donna worked at the hospital, the doctor would throw a Christmas party every year, and they'd have booze and everything else, and we'd go just to show up, but I always felt out of place. I just, you know, I don't really belong here. This is, this is really not where I want to be. And then I go down to something like a, a, a Bible conference, and I sit in an auditorium with 5,000 men who are singing hymns, and I, you know, I feel like I'm in heaven. Why? Well, I'm not comfortable here. And the more comfortable we're here, the less we're going to feel close to Christ, right? If you are a friend of the world, you are the enemy of Christ. Look at you. Look at the kind of TV you watch. What's important to you? Is, is spiritual things important or is this world important? You know, it's, it's one thing to want to do a good job at work in order to honor the Lord. It's another thing because you want to get ahead, climb the corporate ladder and be some big shot. And it goes back to your attitude, right? It goes back to what's in your heart. But the, the point is that we're making here is that, and, and I think Sammy pointed this out too, is that we live in a very comfortable world and it's easy for us to be squeezed into the mold, Right? That's what, uh, I love the Phillips translation, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. What do you value? Do you value fame, fortune, good looks, fast cars, the latest fashions? Is that, is that what drives you? Or is there something outside of this world that drives you? All right. That was the problem in Pilgrim's Progress when they got the Vanity Fair, right? What was Vanity Fair? Vanity Fair was the world, <coughs> what the world valued. Is that what you value? And unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians that value more the things of this world than they do the things of the next. So we have to ask ourselves, do we really love this world? Are we comfortable here? And I find myself more and more uncomfortable here. I go out to eat lunch with a bunch of guys at work, and I just feel, you know, I just don't belong here. I, you know, it's just something... I don't, I don't connect in. I'm not obnoxious, I don't think, or anything like that, but I just don't connect. Uh, you know, they're worried about this and that and the other thing, and I could care less about all that stuff. Yeah. But have you rejected the world? Uh, John, love not the world, neither the things in it. Don't love the world. We're in the world, right? Yes. And it's not wrong. By the way, you know... The, the Bible is not saying you can't enjoy a meal out, you can't have a nice car. It's not saying that kind of stuff. It's saying this is not where our values are at. This is not what should be driving us. Because if it were true that that is where the 
ultimate joy came from? Why would people be jumping off buildings and mm -hmm. doing other things who are well Now, evaluate this in light of what you see on TBN, where you're told to love the world. Every Christian a millionaire. Wait a minute. Doesn't match up, does it? There's no connection there. Don't love the world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Someone said, you know, boat in the water's fine, but when the water's in the boat, you got trouble. <coughs> All right, you're in the world, but you're not of it. Don't let the world get in you. And don't let it squeeze you in its mold and, and define what your priorities are because this world is passing away, right? Yeah. It's going to be gone someday. So don't put your eggs down here. It doesn't mean that, you know, we can't invest wisely and do things like that. But look, this is not where our ultimate joy lies. We have something coming that's more, far better. We got four out of 11. We're in trouble. Um, here's another one. Do you eagerly await the second coming? In what sense? Are you looking for Christ to come back? Yes. If he came back tomorrow, would it ruin your plans? It would fulfill them, right? What's the problem with most American Christians? Life's too good. I want the Lord to come back when I'm going through a season of trial. But, you know, I'm having a great job. You know, I'm going to be off to Hawaii next week or whatever, and I'm going to take this nice trip. And I want to wait till after that and then come back after I get my vacation in or whatever it is. Or Look, if you, if you love Christ, you're going to want him to come back now. You're not going to mess up any of my plans. You have to ask yourself that. That's right. You know, if you're caught up with the things of this world. You know, if I love my wife, I like her to come home. I like to go home and be with her, right? I'm not going to say, you know, well, I wish she wouldn't come home for another three weeks while I party and have a good time and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And then she can come back. No, if I love, I want her. I want to be with her. If you love Christ, you want to be with him. You want him to come back. Now, there's a sense in which you don't want him to come back because there's friends that aren't believers. But personally for you... You can come back now. I'd rather not go to work tomorrow. I'd rather be in heaven, right? Yeah. You had to have to make a choice. Where would you rather be? Marshall. Look at the second the last sentence of the Bible where John says, He who testifies in these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Yeah. Come. Yeah, there, and again, sometimes we are sent trials and tribulations in our lives by the Lord to help us to realize this is not our final home. We're not supposed to be comfortable here. We're not. Our comfort, of our, our, our place of joy, our place of, of home is not here. And I've, I'm finding it, the older I get, I hope I'm not getting crotchety, but the older I get, the more I realize I just... This is the world's a beautiful place. There's beauty here, but this is not my home. No. This really isn't. I, I have another home that's, that's in the future for me, and I'm looking forward to that. And as I get older, the more and more I'm looking forward to that because more and more of the people I know are winding up over there than over here. You know, I'm at that age of life now where all the aunts and uncles and parents and all that are heading off to heaven. So... Before long, I'm going to be the older generation. And uh, we have a longing for a, a different world. Your, our affections are, you know, Colossians says, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Where's your affection at? Uh, Christ says it in the Sermon on the Mount. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. heaven. Not here. Good night. We're so worried about treasure here. You know, the stock market takes a dip and Christians are freaking out. Wait a minute. Is, if that's where your treasure is down here, freak. If you're a pagan, freak. All right? But this is not where your treasure is, is it? It's over there. Do you see a decreasing pattern of sin in your life? 
What do we mean by that? As you look back over your life, is the frequency of sin going down? Are you seeing victory in areas? We're not talking about total victory, right? But do you see more victory today than you did five years ago, ten, or however long you've been a Christian, five years ago, ten years ago? Is there a decreasing pattern of sin? Not perfection, but is there a decreasing pattern? And if it is, who's doing that? That's not you, is it? Why is that? Well, because Romans 8 says the flesh is enmity against God. If you're not a Christian, you're in the flesh. And the flesh does not want to do the right thing. The flesh will not do the right thing. In fact, the flesh cannot do the right thing. You can't help but sin if you're in the flesh. So if you're seeing a decreasing pattern of sin in your life, that's not you pulling it off. That is the Spirit pulling it off for you, which shows that you have a connection to Christ. Ruth. Yeah. And, and, and they go, they sort of go like this. As sin decreases, the fruit of the Spirit goes up, right? So, are you more patient today than you were five years ago? Ten years ago? Well, I'm a lot more patient than I was 15 years ago because I used to get really mad when people went 54 in a 55. I'm not making that up. I really did. I, got, I was very impatient. Now, I, you know, I'll get there at the same time. What's the matter, you know? So I get there 15 seconds later than I thought I would be. Big deal, you know, so what? You learn, you know, wh why is that? Well, that's not me pulling it off. That's me learning patience. And I've not gotten there yet, okay? Because I still get irritated at times. But it's decreasing. I'm a little better. Sammy, you're going to... <laughs> all right, all right, I'll keep talking. And, but, but again, we're not talking about absolute perfection here. And, and, and we have growth spurts in our Christian life, don't we? There are times when you grow and then you plateau and, and then you grow a little bit more. And, so we're going to have that. But as you look back, and this goes with the other one, as you look back over your life, is, is there an upward progression? Are you more sensitive to sin today? Are you closer to the Father today? Do you, do you hate, are you a little more distant from the world and a little bit closer to heaven today? All of that's indications that you have a connection. If those things are missing, that's when you have to go back and say, whoa, wait a minute. Do I have a connection with Christ here? Because I'm certainly not acting like it and I don't feel, I don't have the desires I should be having. Do you love other Christians? Whoa, this is a good one. How does it mean to love other Christians? Do you know there are Christians that irritate the living daylights out of me? And I really don't want to be around them. Do you have those? You're smiling, so you must. We all have those, right? So what does it mean to love other Christians? Does it mean that I have you know, butterflies in my stomach and a lovey-dovey attitude towards them all the time? No. It's how you act towards them. And why is it? Why should we love other Christians? The Lord commands us to. Well, that's sort of a... <laughs> love that person. Yeah. Yes. Go back to the attitude. Why should I love other people? Well, that's me. I love him because he first loved us. They're in the family with us. Yeah, that's John. One of them, you got one. Go back to the attitude. If I love my wife, who else do I love? You giving her a hard time? If I love my wife, what else do I love? I love myself, but boy, you're awfully all close, you know. No. Who others? 
No. If I love my wife, if I really, really love my wife, who else am I going to love? The people she loves. Right? If I love my wife, I'm going to love those that she loves. If I love God, who am I going to love? The ones that he loves. Right? It's very important. We love what... But we love those things that the people that we love loves. All right? Even though we might not personally love that. Um, every once in a while I watch, uh, what is it, uh, Home Improvement. You know, it's sort of fun. And I remember one particular episode where he goes down to Stinky Pete's, you know, and has one of those, bur I don't know what it is, some sandwich. And... Um, Ernest Borgnine was playing a, one of the there, you know, and he's talking about his wife, and she had these little cats that she would put in the window, and he hated those things. So she'd put them up, and he'd take them down. And then she'd put them back up, and he'd take them down. And she'd put them back up, and he took them down. And he asked him, well, what about what happened to your wife? He said, well, she died a few years ago. And he said, well, where's the cats at? And he said, they're up in the window. You love what your wife loves, you know. And if we love God, if we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, we cannot help but love what he loves. We're going to want to do that. And how can we say we love God if we hate those whom he loves? You can't do that. That's pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, that is a command. But what should drive the command? Well, we love God. I, if I love God, I'm going to love that which God loves. And, you know, I think this goes a, a little bit farther. Do you see people that you come in contact with, do you see them as eternal beings that Christ died for? Or are they irritants? Right? We have a lot of irritable people in our lives, right? Yeah. I mean, I look at some of the politicians, and I just say, oh, good. But then I think, wait, oh, wait a minute. They're an eternal soul, right? I mean, how can I hate somebody that Christ was nailed on a cross to redeem, whether they're redeemed or not? It goes back to your attitude. It's the things that they do, not the Yeah, but, but, but still, we, we sometimes fall into that trap of hating. And if you show me a Christian who hates people, or has a grudge, or who can't forgive, it's like, wait a minute, that is incongruous with loving God. You're telling me you love God, but you hate Jim that did something bad to you 25 years ago. There's a disconnection there. If you love God, you're going to love that which God loves. And the question to ask yourself, do you love other Christians? Right. Yeah. 
you know, I know Sierra neighbors sometimes are drunk and fell and everything, just behaving, you know, as an African and they will come inside our house and our, our children will say something that's pretty negative about them. And I have to correct them and say, just remember, they're, they're not our enemy, they're our mission people. Yeah. And though we're not to condone or, or encourage that kind of behavior that they're exhibiting, they're not our enemy. Right. We make them our enemy and then we lose our effectiveness. I got my senior moment undone. Good. Um, what I was going to say earlier when you were talking basically in my words about you shall know them by their fruits. In other words, mm -hmm. Christians who really are living for the Lord will demonstrate it and getting to be able to say that I've grown to a point of sinning a little less or, you know, that sort of thing. And my kind of, if you will, devil's advocate question is, yeah, but what about those people who either don't claim salvation, you know, they, they don't claim to be Christians, but they're really good moral people, and yeah, but what about some people who claim Christ but live way worse? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the people who claim Christ and live way worse need to go back and ask themselves, do they have a connection? Because if they live way worse and they don't care, that's a problem. There are some people that because of external pressure will be moral. Because of their, they, they're going to earn that salvation, they're going to earn this, they're going to earn that. But what is their heart attitude? Can someone who is in the flesh please God? What does Romans say? No. You may be able to externally clean up a little bit of stuff, right? What are, and, and that's no better than the Pharisees, right, who outside looked pretty, pretty good. The outside of the cup looked really clean, but then you look inside it and it's like, I ain't going to use that. And it goes back to that. So that, that's how I would answer that. Um, but as a Christian, do you see an increasing pattern of holiness in your life, decreasing pattern of sin? And do you love other Christians? Do you have a desire to love that which God loves? Because if you do, that's an indicator that you love God. And like Marshall said in 1 John 4, if you say you love God and hate your brother, you are a liar. Now how clear can you get? You deceive yourself. And I've run into Christians that have grudges that go back 25, 30 years, and I seriously question their connection to Christ. Because they hate other people. You can't do that. For God so loved what? The world. the world. And God loved the people that hated him and nailed him on a cross. He still loved them. And that doesn't mean you have butterflies in your stomach every time these people walk by, but you see them differently. You, you get back and you, you see them as an eternal soul that someday is going to stand before their creator. And what impact can I have on them? As obnoxious and as irritable as they are, can I have a positive influence on them? It's gaining a different perspective. So, so there is no fine line between loving Christians and loving the Um, I think you need to love both, but there's a special love you have for other believers. Yeah, it's the same thing. You know, I love all of you, but I really love my wife. And, and, and there's a difference of degree there. But, but we, we are to love other believers. We are, we are to especially love other believers, but we're also to exhibit love to unbelievers, right? How, how do unbelievers know that we're real? Because we love them. Now, if we are showing hatred and anger and you know, all that kind of stuff, what, they get mixed messages. You know, they're not getting the right message. And unfortunately, that's what they do a lot of times because we're so obnoxious as Christians against unbelievers. Um, here's another one. Have you experienced answered prayer? Has there been any time in your life where you've had answered prayer? What does that tell you? Does God answer the prayers of unbelievers? Every once in a while he might do it, but is he obligated to hear the unbeliever? No. So if you've exhibited answered prayer in your life, and I remember having several times where I've made a prayer and it's been answered like, and I knew it was... God, because there's no other way. What does that tell you? That tells you I have a connection with him. 
Sometimes it isn't. That's right. And sometimes you get the no's from him too, right? And when you get a no, that's answered prayer as well. Right. Yeah. And, and what we have is sometimes we have a very, what do you want to call it, a very self-centered view of prayer. And we have the idea worked out of how God's supposed to answer this thing. And usually he does it in a different way. And I think the reason he does that is just for us to realize that he's answering it his way, not my way. I mean, you might have gone back, and maybe this is a bad illustration, but like Gideon might have had a prayer to help defeat the Midianites. And God said, okay, I'm going to do that, but I'm not going to do it the way you think it should be done. I'm not going to give you a one million man army to go smash these 30,000 or whatever Midianites. I'm going to whittle you down to 300 guys. And you're going to go win. And that way when you win, there's going to be no, no confusion on who's pulled this one off. It's not going to be you. And God, I, I find it as I grow, you know, if I'm longer a Christian, as I grow older in my faith, I see God answering my prayers in ways I don't think... Wow, he answered it, and I would never have thought of doing it that way, but you know, that's a better way than I had figured out. And sometimes, and sometimes I look back and I see he answered a prayer and I didn't catch the answer when it came. I figured it out later on. Oh, wait a minute. He answered, oh, wow. You know, it's like, duh. You know, he answered my prayer three months ago, but I was too dull to see it. Yeah, he does it, but God answers prayer. And if as a believer you have had answered prayer in your life, that's the... Con a, an indicator you have a connection this is the confidence that we have in him when we ask anything according to his will he hears us God hears me and we know that if he hears us whatever we ask we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him maybe not the way we thought he would answer them but he does answer them he does answer them um, another one here have you experienced the ministry of the Holy Spirit Have you felt the ministry of the Spirit? The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Have you experienced that? Um, I've got to hurry a little bit here. I'll get thrown out. Um, have you experienced persecution? Here's one. Have, has there been any point in your time where there's been a price for you to be a Christian? Where it's cost you something? Now, we might have not been beat up. We've not have been hit by a mob, but... You know, if you've had to give something up for being because you're a Christian, and we don't we don't see this as much in this world, do we? As or in our little world here, than you do in the rest of the world. But one of the indications is, do you receive persecution because of your faith? I've had in my past life. I've had times when I've it's cost me something to be a Christian. I got fired from a job. Yeah. Here's the final one. I think it's the final one. Can you discern truth from error? What does that mean? Um, do you understand what God says in his word? Can you, when somebody comes along and starts saying something, is there something within you that says, you know, I'm, I'm not maybe exactly sure where they're astray here, but boy, that doesn't sound right. You ever have that happen to you? There's just something off kilter here. And, and when you talk to someone who's maybe in a cult who denies the de deity of Christ, is there, do you see that? Do you understand that? Can you discern error from truth? Now, admittedly, some are better than others in this, right? But all of us have the Holy Spirit. If we have the Holy Spirit, what can we discern? Truth, truth from error. Why? Because it's the Spirit that gives us that understanding, that insight, that comprehension of what truth is. We are of God. He that knoweth God hears us. He that is not of God hears not us. 
This is interesting. Paul, John is saying, if I'm giving you the message of salvation and, and, the, and, the, and the truth of the scripture and somebody's not listening to us, what does that tell you? They're not a Christian. They're not one of us. Of course, it, of course they're not going to listen to us. Well, I think what he's doing here is he's making a, a distinction between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Who is the spirit of truth? Holy Spirit, right? What's the spirit of error? Every other doctrine. And where do all the false doctrines come from? Satan. Satan. He, and it's in the context of the, whoever does not believe that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. It's talking about the, you know, the doctrine, the fundamental doctrines of the faith, the fundamental doctrines of the gospel. That's what it's talking about there and he's talking about the spirit of the antichrist what's the spirit of the antichrist and against christ and that could take many forms but one of the things as believers is that we have the inward dwelling holy spirit that enables us to see and discern truth and if we depend on the holy spirit he will protect us from falling into error and falling into trouble Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're out of time, so let's uh, close and pray. We did get through this, so next week we're going to look at sanctification. So, Father, thank you for this day and for helping us to get through the material. I pray that you'd help us to ponder what we've learned today, and be assured that we have a connection with you. We thank you that we have that, and that we can know for sure that you are our Savior and our God in Christ's name. Amen.